Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here, and today we are going to chat all about winter growing secrets I wish I knew when I got started. So when we started our farm, we uh, rapidly realized that the upstate New York growing season was really short. Um, We barely some years had 90 days uh, or 120 days of frost free, so we could have Moyle Day would be our uh, last frost. And then Labor Day could be our first frost. So it was a pretty short growing season. So we knew we had to do some sort of season extension. But then we realized that we were obviously in a place where there was a lot of farmers. Upstate New York has some wonderful farmers in the Hudson Valley. Um, it's a great growing area and just a lot of good growers. As well as Vermont is chock full of more great growers. And so we knew there was a lot of competition for summer production. So we knew we had to focus on the winter aspects. And our mentors, Paul and Sandy Arnold, at that point had done some winter growing, so spinach, and then Seth Jacobs, who is a grower south of us, who I think has moved directly into a lot of hemp production now, was actually um, quite into winter growing and putting up a lot of greenhouses around that. So we took a look at what they were doing and then put our first tunnel up. And it was a 30 by 96 tunnel. Um, we did all the mistakes we could the first year. Uh, we put wooden ends on it. We put wooden hip boards on it. We didn't put um, tall ground posts, so it was really short on the side. You couldn't walk down the edge of the greenhouse. We bought it used, so we were you know, trying to make everything work from damaged components. And we thought we needed to heat it. So we put in a wood boiler that we literally had to feed every couple hours. And um, I... Do not relish those go, going back to those days of chucking wood every couple hours. So the thing is, it was successful. I mean, very successful. We've got some great pictures of us that first year harvesting from the greenhouse, pulling out beautiful radishes and lettuce and spinach and Asian greens and that sort of thing. And uh, we knew that we had found something that was our niche and that could really work for us. We just knew we needed to figure out the mechanics of it, you know, figure out the dates. Because again, this first year, we didn't get stuff planted to November. So that meant that we weren't harvesting till April to, uh, I think it was probably early March or late February when we started harvesting. Um, there was still snow on the ground because again, snow on the ground can be into April sometimes in New York. But um, we knew we were onto something. So Fast forward, and uh, we were, when we were like 2012, we were running about a third of an acre of tunnels, everything from low tunnels to uh, hoop houses um, to more of the high tunnel type. So, um, you know, that really made a difference for us on our farm. We were able to go to markets 12 months out of the year. We kept our employees year-round. It allowed us to keep those customers year-round and have a CSA that people were paying us every single month for, and it helped pay for the startup expenses for the year. So being able to go through December, January, and February, and March, which is about a quarter of our income, definitely brought in money so that meant we didn't have to go out and get a annual operating loan. So that's what we're going to discuss today. We're going to talk about some of the tricks and tips along the way that we learned, um, some of the things that we recommend as you're looking to get into winter production, or you just want to extend your season because a lot of those things will translate into that as well. 
Okay, so first up, let's talk structures. So there's all sorts of structures out there. I mean, you can do the little low tunnels because they're super cheap per square foot, although I do not recommend them because trying to get into them under snow and uh, just the amount of work that goes into putting them up, I think, and the amount of protection they provide doesn't correspond. I'd rather actually see you um, plant stuff in the field, do a good job growing it, and then harvesting it before it gets super cold and storing it in your cooler, which we'll get to in a little bit. I want to talk about that as well. But back to structures. So the main structures we obviously would recommend is either caterpillar tunnels or high tunnels. Caterpillar tunnels are great because they're cheap and they're easy to put up. In a couple hours, you can throw one up. But there's a lot of downsides too. Very small area, so that means that you're going to frost creeping in on the edges. They stay cold. They um, can be damaged by the wind. They can be damaged by the snow, depending on where you are, if you help close you put your bows. Um, so that's why high tunnels are preferred. Now, high tunnels, again, the advantages there is that they have massive airspace, so it's going to warm up much more. It's, it has much less edge effect to a center effect, which means that it has less uh, cooling pushing on the greenhouse. So it's got a lot more volume of air inside, which means it's going to stay warmer and it's going to actually produce a much better crop and more of a crop because the warmer your greenhouse stays, the more production you'll have. So um, we prefer, you know, going as wide as you can. Right now we are actually looking at a 36 by 196 greenhouse or maybe 198. Not sure exactly how we're going to do that. But again, the bigger, the better and uh, high sidewalls. And there's, again, a bunch more uh, aspects of this too. Again, go with all steel production. Make sure you put overhead irrigation in. But yeah, there's a few other things that we could talk about on this, but we're just gonna keep moving through the different aspects that you need to work for. So the next thing I would recommend is when you're constructing this, obviously you wanna make sure you're in the right location, wanna make sure the orientation is correct for your area. And then the other thing too is to make sure you have proper drainage. So this is a key thing that I think a lot of beginners forget is that with that, that, that greenhouse, it's gonna shed a lot of water and that water needs to go someplace and you don't want that water in your tunnel. So you wanna spend the money, do the excavation, um, make sure it's oriented right and that you have it sloping away or you put French drains in along the side so that it's gonna drain the water out. And uh, so that's definitely worth money worth spending. Another thing is to anchor the tunnel down. So especially as soon as you build it, um, if you build it in the fall or the spring and you end up getting some of those uh, weather events where it is, you know, it, it rains and then it's super windy, those pipes can actually slide right up out of the ground. And we actually had, when we built our first one, we actually had to drive our trucks inside the tunnel and put straps from the bows underneath the truck to hold the thing down because it literally was lifting. It was, a, it was like two feet up in one corner because of just the, the massive wind and where we were located, we were on top of a mountain and all the, uh, the wind just blew right across there really, really heavily. So definitely make sure you use tie downs and uh, there's a, a couple different options for that. Um, another thing I would say is snow. So snow has a big, especially the farther north you are, you're going to have more snow. But making sure you get rid of the right amount of snow and get rid of the snow properly. It's not great to just go out there and say, I'm going to start clearing snow. Because if you clear all the snow on one side of the house and not the other, you can absolutely cause the collapse yourself. So what we recommend is come in and remove snow equally from both sides. And so that will allow it to um, kind of distribute that stress back and forth and not collapse the whole thing. Another thing is if it's snowing, 
go out during the snowstorm and remove it a couple inches at a time. It's much, much easier. We had a storm, I think it got us about 36 to 42 inches. And we have, because we weren't clearing fast enough, we eventually um, just got stuck. I mean, all the equipment got stuck. We could not just could not move anymore. So we had to have our, our neighbor with a massive 80 horsepower John Deere come over with a massive bucket. And he was very kind to work for three or four hours and help us get it all cleared out. Um, and nothing collapsed that day. But it still is something that uh, you want to be pay attention to and uh, it can be a challenge. The other thing for removing snow is to get your light in there because light is super important in the wintertime and actually the 10 hours of daylight is where growth kind of stops on your farm. There can be a little bit of growth, especially down south. I don't think it's as relevant um, because again, if your temperatures stay above 50 degrees, that's kind of a magic cutoff. Things will actually keep growing slightly during that time period, but that's something you definitely want to think about. Um, shape. So obviously the further north you are, and if you have snow issues, you definitely want the Gothic shape, which is where the greenhouse goes to a point in the middle. And uh, Quonset is more of the half round shape, and that's more for things like further south and uh, smaller tunnels. So when we were up in New York, we had Quonset shaped um, hoop houses or caterpillars, and that worked fine, although we did definitely get some snow buildup on the peak and it'd been nicer if it was Gothic, but they still work that way. Okay, the other big thing I wanna talk about is when to plant. Because everyone's like, well, I don't know if I need to pull my tomatoes now and get stuff in the ground or not. And because the U.S. has so many different great growing zones, which makes it fun, it also makes it very hard to for me to say, sit here and say, Michael, um, you know, you say, Michael, where, when do I plant my spinach? And, well, it's, it's tough. I mean, the, for us, there was a couple rules of thumb that we use, and I can share those. Obviously, we go much, much deeper into this in some of our other trainings. But for, let's say, things like spinach, you'll want to plant it um, let's, in the greenhouse. If you're looking for baby spinach, you can plant like a couple weeks after uh, your first frost date. Um, in the fall. So let's say it's middle of September and another a couple of weeks. So maybe even to middle of October, you could plant that. Again, that's going to be varied about the size that you actually get it during the winter time because you have to get it large enough to actually um, harvest. So uh, again, if you're planting middle of September, it's going to be pretty big. If you plant the end of October or middle of October, it's going to be relatively small. Uh, for things like lettuce, you want to plant that again, beginning of October. And again, looking at like your last frost date and then like counting off about four weeks after that um, makes sense. But for other crops, it's different too. For like brassica greens, we were planting those middle of September in our in our greenhouse and starting those in um, in late August, early September. So it's, it's a couple different crops, a wide variety. And the other thing too, is you don't want to plant all at once. So you're going to stagger these. And what we would do is when we would figure out like a new crop, we like, we think it'll be grow best around this date. We would also plant on two dates around that. So maybe five days before we plan on the perfect date we thought, and then five days after, and then keep records of that. So when tag in the greenhouse tag would always get the variety the date it was planted and how we planted it. So we planted with the Earthway and used the beet plate number two, which is a custom beet plate that we would create for Earthway. Then that was gonna be written on that tag. And obviously we were also writing that down in our, um, our spreadsheet. But the reason is on the tag is so when you're in the field, you can just walk through the field and just say, huh, I wonder what this was. It's not looking as good as I would like, or this looks perfect. What was that actual rate? 
Okay, so another easy, easy way to keep track of everything is just snap pictures. So go out into the field, snap pictures of what things look like. When you see the bed, snap picture with a surrounding a landmark that you can get an idea of where it was. And then it's just all gonna upload into your photo sync. And hopefully you're using something like Google Photos so that you can just go back and say, what did it look like yes, last year at this time? Oh, okay, that's how it looked. And then you can get a good idea of how you need to go from there. Let's chat crop steering because crop steering is also something you need to think about too is um, again, every fall is different and that's one of the wildly frustrating things about winter growing is that you never quite know when things are going to be ready. And so with crop steering, what you're doing is you're looking at things, you're comparing it to last year via pictures and you're saying, okay, we seem to be a little bit behind this year. So what are we going to do? How are we going to manage that? Well, there's only a couple ways to manage that. Either you can row cover things or drop your sides on your tunnel to try to heat it up. If you're trying to slow it down because it's getting too big too fast, you're going to obviously raise your sides of your tunnel. You can slow it down by like reducing uh, water to it. So you're just going to stop watering as much. So those are the main ways to do that. Now, the problem with that is that you also need to worry about acclimating your crops to the winter. So with acclimating, what you're going to do is you're going to slowly bring the temperatures down instead of just letting the temperatures naturally fall. So what tends to happen is you've got some beautiful fall weather and it's like you're in your, your Indian um, autumn, I think it's called, or Indian summer, you know, that after that first frost, you get that beautiful month of beautiful weather. And at the end of that, sometimes it will just rapidly drop. Usually around the time of a, a full moon is when the temperature just tends to bottom out. And if you're like five or eight degrees lower than it has been before, that can actually damage the crops. So we've seen it where, you know, it was, it was great all along, it was beautiful fall, then all of a sudden this massive drop of coldness. And that can destroy your crops because the crops just aren't acclimated to that. They don't have the necessary antifreeze in their veins that would be caused by repeated warmer frosts or, you know, not as cold nights, I guess, is what you could also say. So what you want to do here is you want to very carefully bring the temperature down over a period of a week or 10 days. Now, sometimes this is possible to do just with row cover and closing the house up. Sometimes you actually might need to bring in a salamander heater to do that or extra layers of row cover. But this is key for production. Again, we'll talk through this. We have more details on this and some of our other trainings. Um, so I'm just trying to do the high level because, again, what we're covering today, I'm trying to do like an hour podcast or maybe 45 minutes, is a two-day masterclass that we teach um, a couple times a year. So I definitely want to try to give you the high-level overview, but we just can't get into some of these details that I'd like to because literally I can only sit here in a chair for so long. So back to the acclimation though is um, you know you want to bring it down a couple degrees at a time. And um, you also don't want to try to rush crops. So I'd rather you get the crops in the ground earlier than try to put them in later and rush them to get them to size because that will damage them more easily. Another thing too, um, like just this is a little thing, is like lettuce that's transplanted into the tunnel versus lettuce that's direct seeded. Um, will actually fare much worse. So the transplanted lettuce gets bigger. It has a, a larger stem because it's a bigger plant and it's spaced out more. And those cells in the stem, for some reason, just do not take the cold like the smaller baby greens do. So the smaller the plant, the better it will take the cold. And actually, 
if you plant in the middle of the winter in the tunnels, let's say you plant December and it's cold and the, the, the crop germinates in that freezing cold, you can pretty much do anything to it. You can't kill that the, those plants. They just are super, super hardy because they germinated and they started out in that super cold uh, temperatures and you're, they're acclimating to warmer temperatures instead of going the other way. So that's just a little tip there too is that can help as well. Um, let's talk soil because in your tunnel, you're spending a lot of money on these crops and a lot of money on those structures. So you want to have the absolute best soil possible. So we like to see organic matters in the eight to 10% range. And we would manage that a couple different ways. Um, we also would do two soil tests a year. So we do one in the spring. We'd also do one in the fall. So normally how a cycle in the greenhouse for us would go would be we'd plant in the spring with tomatoes probably in uh, March or probably beginning of April. Tomatoes go through the summer, pull the tomatoes out in the fall, plant the, the greens, and at that time we'd do our soil test. Then we'd go through the winter with greens, and then when we came back out, we would do another soil test before we put the tomatoes in. And uh, both times we're going to top dress with, you know, peat moss or, or compost or something along those lines to make sure that we um, had plenty of fertility as well as put in some um, organic fertilizer as well. Now, word of caution on organic fertilizer is you don't want to put in too much of the, like the chicken-based fertilizers because chicken-based fertilizers, or for that fact, any animal-based fertilizers is going to be high in salts. And again, fertilizer comes in multiple different forms. And one of the ways it comes in is just the salts. Like there can be like um, nitrogen salts. And again, I'm not an expert on that. But when you do that, what that means is when you have those high salts is they accumulate in the soil a lot faster in the greenhouse than they do out in the field because in the field, they're flushed away by the rains. And with the greenhouse, unless you're going to take your cover off every so often, you're going to have those salts. So you want to be careful about limiting that. Um, you can do the flush yourself just by irrigating for like eight or 10 hours and just really driving them down. Um, but if you go into your greenhouse now, and let's say you haven't irrigated for a few days, you have like a white crust on the soil. You'll see like at the tops of your soil, it'll be white. That's because of all the moisture wicking up, evaporating and leaving those salts there. So it can be a real problem with trying to germinate crops. So if you have a crop that you try to germinate in there and you feel like you're just not getting that germination, probably it's the salts. So kind of the sum up about soils is lots of compost, two soil tests a year. And again, you want to use the biological life soil test too. Don't just want a standard soil test because um, again, those, those soils in there are so unique um, with higher N, they're just, it's almost, it's almost like an artificial environment because it is, because it's covered with plastic. I mean, if some of those bigger houses, I have a friend in the Hudson Valley that has two 42 foot wide by 196 long. Again, that's 42 feet by 196. So it's almost, it's over 8,000 square feet of space. Um, he says that they almost get their own microclimate in there. And there's almost like clouds in there because it's such a big space. So it's definitely something that, you know, we're kind of making a manufactured um, environment. So there's going to be some aspects of that. All right, so obviously when you're preparing the soil, um, we usually do a deep rip, try to rip the beds to break up any compaction, till it, um, form the beds. 
Ideally, so let's talk about managing weeds in this whole process. Ideally, you're going to let that bed sit for seven to 10 days so you can try to germinate a flush of weeds before you seed. Sometimes that's not, not possible. So what we've actually gone to is two different growing systems. Well, actually, there's multiple growing systems, but two main growing systems in the tunnel. One, bare ground, where you're going to seed your direct seeded spinach, your lettuces, your mescalins, and then plastic covered beds. And the reason for this is when you cover beds with plastic, you get actually a one degree change in temperature, a one degree increase in the ground soil temperature because of that black aspect on there. So it is worth it and it keeps the weeds down. I mean, one of the biggest weeds in tunnels is chickweed. And so being able to manage that is incredibly important. So let's talk that actually, let's talk weeds. So the biggest weeds we've always had a problem with Again, this is on a productive system. So if you have like a beginning a tunnel and you've got some perennial weeds in there, just try to get rid of those best you can um, with tillage. But the ones that keep coming back, especially in fertile soils, will be tomato seedlings in the fall as well as chickweed. So again, dealing with tomato seedlings, try not to let any tomatoes fall and self-destruct on the floor of your tunnel. Just We like to keep the ground covered with white fabrics or a plastics to keep the, the light going up into the canopy. So again, anything that hits that, it's going to be swept off and moved away so you just don't have those tomato seedlings on there. If you do, um, a good flame weed will take care of them or opening the tunnel and letting it freeze in there will also clean them out as well. Um, because they're, they're not going to be able to take the frost. So um, the other thing is uh, for chickweed is you can flame it, although steaming the soil or solarizing the soil is a much better option. And so what we like to we, we see frequently is someone will do a spring planting of greens in the tunnel, and then literally till the entire thing, tarp it with clear tarps from side to side, water well water it heavily tarp it with clear tarps from side to side, then seal the entire thing up for like a month or six weeks. And it absolutely works. Um, I saw this at Jericho Settlers Farm outside of Burlington, Vermont. So uh, they're up in like a zone four, zone three area. And they did this and it was a night and day difference, incredible difference between the two houses. So absolutely something you can do, absolutely something that is uh, possible. Um, it just takes time. And again, if you don't have the time, then the next thing would be to steam it and, uh, Steaming is something that um, we could do a whole talk about how to make that work. There's a couple growers in the U.S. that are working with it intensely and doing a lot of research right now. So, um, but the kind of the top aspect is what you do is you take this uh, fabric sock and that it, you lay it all over the ground in your greenhouse. I think it's like a six foot wide by maybe 150 foot strip. And then you pump steam th in, through it. And that basically penetrates the soil and basically cooks the soil and kills all the weed seeds and bad um, uh, fungi and diseases and that sort of thing. And obviously the biggest thing people say is, Michael, does that hurt the beneficial organisms? Well, yeah, it does. The worms will just go down deep and, and survive it, but you are gonna kill some mycorrhizae and stuff. And so what we end up doing is, as soon as that comes out, we'll just go back in and introduce good bacteria, a whole host of good bacteria. And this all sorts of ways you can make that. Um, you could actually take some soil from your greenhouse and, and, and kind of propagate it out. But the problem with that is that you're also probably propagating out the bad bacteria as well. So frequently it's good to bring in just brand new bacterium um, that you're that you're getting happy with. 
Okay, so weed control, um, we kind of covered that a little bit. And then flaming, of course, works. So again, if you're direct seeding, you can direct seed, wait three, to, uh, irrigate, wait three to five days, and uh, then flame the, the tunnel. And so again, with, with tunnels, because there's such a great soil tilth normally in there, again, tomatoes come out, then we go ahead, prep the beds. Then what we do is we go ahead and seed, um, or actually wait seven days, irrigate again lightly, seed again. And the reason for that is the whole first um, irrigation is to germinate the weed seeds. The second time we are going to just go ahead and uh, kind of break the crust again so we can seed it, depending on what seeder you're using, depending on how much of a crust it can take. So that's obviously a little bit of a nuance there. But then you go in and seed. And obviously at that time, hopefully you're seeing some weed seeds come up. And then you're going to wait a couple days right before your crop germinates and then flame the thing hard to just knock off that full aspect of weed seeds. And that should really set you up for success in there. All right. So there we go. Let's talk space utilization. So one of the things I've seen people do is that they don't utilize the space well in their tunnels. And uh, with the expensive square uh, per square foot, I mean, we're looking at usually for a high tunnel, $4 to $12 a square foot, depending on what options you get, depending on the bells and whistles. And um, so you, it's an expensive pace. You want to make sure you maximize your dollars per square foot. So what we've done is, again, the wider the bed means the less paths, and paths aren't making you money in the tunnel. So you want to have wide beds. You want to have planted right up to the ends. And so you want to be you know, as high as like you can. I've seen some farms up to 90% utilization. Um, I've seen some people plant the Pac-Man style where they basically just plant from wall to wall and then just kind of like start their way in and harvest their way in. Um, that tends to work, but that tends to work for more of a one cut, not like a repeated a recut situation. So that may not be why it might not be best. We would plant in beds. We usually did five foot on center. So usually like a 42 or 48 inch bed top with a foot path. Again, narrow as path as possible just to get yourself down wide bed to plant as many greens as possible. Try to soak up as much sunlight per square foot as possible. Um, so then too, the other thing is you can interplant too. So like we would plant um, Swiss chard and bok choy together. Um, now the Swiss chard grows slow. So you harvest off one time in the fall, then it kind of sits there through the winter, and then it will start harvesting again in February like crazy. Once the sun changes, the temperatures come back up, that Swiss chard will literally pump out a bunch per plant per week it felt like in the spring. So you just pump out a ton, but between that, you have December, January, and February that there's not much happening. So that's why you'd interplant it with Asian greens, which actually grow much more at a lower temperature and um, are a little bit hardier. So again, you're harvesting that, and then as soon as they start to bolt, which would be in end of February, you rip those out and the Swiss chard would take over. Another thing we would do is plant our end walls. So, you know, one of the things with these tunnels is you have that right against the end wall, which is almost wasted space. So we plant things like herbs there, like lavender or rosemary or um, other herbs, which, you know, could take a little bit more, need some protection, but also are going to give us a yield over the winter. Time is a great one in there as well. So let's also talk underplanting. So another thing we would do too is when we put the tomatoes in, we would actually rip out the center of our beds, plant tomatoes in the center of our beds with brand new compost, let the greens keep growing on the outside of the beds. You have to be really careful because if you have aphids, you do not want to do this. If you have aphids in there, you want to clear the entire bed. And we'll talk about aphids at the end. Um, but if you are managing well, you can do this technique. 
And then as soon as those greens are done, if the tomatoes aren't too big, you could actually rip those greens out and replant greens in the same spot between the tomatoes. And then by the time those tomatoes are like six or seven weeks old, they'll have grown enough to actually start shading that. But you have harvested all that. And now uh, things that we've underplanted, we've underplanted things like celery, uh, kale, radishes, turnips. Uh, let's see, other things would be like cilantro, dill, beets actually work real well, turnips work real well. So again, you can really, if you underplant, you can pay for the heat of that entire house for keeping those tomatoes nice and toasty just by underplanting with those crops. But you have to be careful because it takes a lot more management to make that work. We've also done overplanting. So this is where we would plant bulbs underneath the ground in the fall. Then we'd plant greens right on top of that. And uh, the harvest greens would be harvested, the bulbs would come up, and uh, either like the onions or flower bulbs would give us a whole nether second crop from that same space. Another thing is obviously spacing out the plantings too. So when we would plant greens, because we wanted to have mesclin all winter long, we would start planting end of, uh, well, probably actually early October, and we wouldn't finish planting in the tunnel to like the first week of November. So we were doing like four to six plantings in there to make sure that we had a succession of plantings so we could harvest all spring. And then for like things like mesclun, yes, you'll get a regrowth, but sometimes it's worth actually ripping it out, especially if you're harvesting most of the plant and replanting. And again, with, with the planting too, there's like multiple ways to harvest things. So there's obviously plant, harvest the whole plant, things like leeks, radishes, beets, uh, carrots. And that's why I don't like growing those in tunnels like this is because you harvest them once and then there's, if you're further south, it may work better. But where we were north, you're just not going to get much growth in the winter. So your tunnel is more about stockpiling and then you're going to do a lot of your planting and, uh, you know, in October and then you're starting to replant back in February. Um, so again, if you're ripping out crops completely, there's not any growth happening in those four months. But if you have, um, if you have plants that you're just pinching off the outside leaves, like kale, uh, chard, the Asian greens, things like spinach, they will regrow much quicker because they have a root system in the ground and they have some leaves that are collecting the photosynthesis for them. So that's why I, I like to actually harvest you know, the outer bigger leaves compared to clear cutting a, a tunnel because you get a, a better quality leaf. So you don't get cut leaves. You don't get like a half cut leaf on the top, but you also get um, you also get more photosynthesis happening in the tunnel there. So that's why I like that. And uh, it just does a better quality with that. The other thing too is um, row covers. So row covers can be an incredibly important part of this system. And they, they normally are because what does row covers do? There's a lot of things row covers do. One, they trap in heat, not a lot, but some. Two, they stop the wind, which is in super important because when a crop is frozen, any wind is going to desiccate it. And when that happens, what's going to happen is they cannot replace the water that's been pulled from the surface cells of their leaves um, because they're frozen. And so they're just going to die. And so you'll get uh, burnt spots on your leaves. So that's why the row cover helps that too. The other thing is it will hold moisture in, which also helps with the desiccation. And another thing that that's going to do is um, it's actually going to prevent it from warming up super quick. So let's say it's been zero at night, inside your tunnel is 15 degrees, and the sun comes up. Well, the sun's gonna raise the temperature in the greenhouse very rapidly, which can get up to 70 or 80 degrees on a spring day, That's even if it's that cold because that much solar energy coming into the house. And so what's gonna happen is you can actually warm your plants way too quick 
and that can actually burn them as well or damage the cell structure. So what the row cover does is actually slows that down enough that the plant can actually wake up properly. So super key. The other thing though is you don't want a lot of moisture. Yes, you're trying to preserve the moisture under the row cover, but too much moisture is going to cause problems as well. And so what you need to do is you need to run your vents open. So we would run our vents open to around 32 degrees. Um, Paul and Sandy Arnold leave their vents open, I think down to like minus uh, something degrees. I mean, they leave them open pretty much 24 seven during the winter time. They don't close them. They wanna keep the, the humidity as low as possible. Um, my thought was below 32 degrees, not much moisture is moving around because it's frozen, but I don't, I don't know if that's true. That's obviously some of the research we still need to do. Um, so we thought, you know, closing those vents would keep it a little bit warmer. But again, I mean, the thing about the walls of greenhouses, they're either two layers of plastic, one layer of plastic, or maybe polycarbonate. There's not a lot of insulatory value there. So it's not really affecting too, too, too much. So yeah, that's, that's the aspect there. So yeah, the row cover is going to, you want to keep the heat as close to the plants as possible. Cause what is, what you basically in your greenhouses you're doing is there's this huge battery of soil heat that's in the ground. And, uh, you're going to basically release that into the plant area and your goal with the row cover is to keep all that heat in. So, um, it's really important to make sure that you, you focus on that, um, all right, so let's keep moving through the different topics here. Um, we've talked about some planting. We haven't talked uh, crops. So crops are super important. Um, we've talked about weeds. We've talked about transplants versus direct seeding. Now with kale and chard, transplanting actually works real well. And for an early planting of lettuce, so if you know you're going to harvest it in December, actually transplanting it works really well because you can get it in a little bit later, get it up to size, harvest it out. If you're going to know you're going to replant that, you're not planning on it lasting through the winter. Um, we talked about stale seed bedding. We've talked about planting on plastic. Um, weeding. So I really love the wire weeder. Um, so that originally came from Johnny's. There's a little hand thing. We were the first ones to actually, um, turn it into a stand-up weeder. So we just went out and got wiggle wire, actually took wiggle wire, bent it into a shape, use a hose clamp to clamp it to the end of a, um, a mop handle, um, or maybe a painting handle. And that was our first wire weeder. And, uh, since then, you know, Elliot Coleman's done a lot of work on that. And, uh, you know, two bad cats worked on a version with us as well. And so there's a couple of different ways you can use those out there. But the reason we love wire weeders is they're, they don't move a lot of soil. So they move very little soil and, um, they just do a great job of sliding between the rows and getting rid of all those hair stage weeds. All right. So we also talked acclimation. So we went through that, you know, hardening off crops, making sure it doesn't go down too, 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 um, too fast and you can damage it. And, um, let's see also hardening off in the fall, make sure you're gradually lowering those temperatures. Now, one of the things we would do for that is that, um, if we had like a, a full bed or full house of kale and we would plant Pac-Man style for the kale. So I've got a picture on our, on our ebook that, uh, you can grab and uh, it, it basically is one side of the tunnel to the other. It's just planted every 15 inches with kale. I mean, just solid straight across. And what we would do is just work our way in and start harvesting. And uh, what we'd do is leave the plastic off as long as possible. So we leave the plastic off till probably November, 
maybe throw a row cover over it if it was super cold. But when we knew we saw that it was going to get down to the teens and stay there, that's when we put the plastic over. And so then that crop would be super hardy underneath there and we wouldn't have to worry about acclimating as well. The other thing is that a lot of the time it's the second cold night to worry about. So the first one, it dips, it gets cold, but there's enough heat in that soil to give off and, uh, and help things. Um, but the second night, because there's this, the, the heat has gone out of the soil, is where it frequently gets too cold and then you have some problem. So the thing with that too is that another pro tip is to, if you notice cold nights coming up, irrigate. Because the thing about irrigation is that's putting a lot more heat holding capacity in the water because water holds a lot more heat than air. And so if you can saturate the soil with a lot more percentage of water in the layers of the soil, the, the root zone, than air, you're going to be able to hold more heat down there. So there's that as well. We talked row covers. Um, Let's talk pests. Let's talk pests and then let's wrap this up. So some of the major pests that you're going to see in your tunnel is our, A, the customers always wanting more and more greens. So that's a big aspect there. So you've got the customers, which nothing you can do about them. You can kind of fend them off normally. Um, we did actually, in our winter time, we would change our bag size. So in the summer's time, we would sell third of a pound bags of greens. In the winter time, we actually moved to quarter pound. And um, that was because, again, we wanted to stretch it further so we could keep, again, even with a third of an acre of tunnels, we just couldn't keep up production because we moved so many greens with, again, multiple hundreds of CSA members and all the other retail customers at our farmer's market. So we moved the bag of the size of the greens down so to be able to stretch it a little bit further. And then we'd also eliminate all... Uh, buy to, you know, or, uh, deals. So normally during the summertime when we had lots of salad mix, it was two bags for seven. It was $4 each or two bags for seven that pushed usually 50 to 60% of folks to buy two bags. The winter time that that went away, we'd completely get rid of that. So other, other, uh, pests in the greenhouse, um, can be voles. Voles to me are one of the worst ones because not only will they just eat the leaves, they will eat, chew the entire plant, destroy it. And they tend to hide in, um, plant material or under, uh, tarps or stuff like that. So you want to keep around your tunnel super, super clean. You want to keep it mowable. So you want to have all the, the edges so you can just mow down it or ground cloth along the edges. So there's no place for them to hide because, um, coyotes and, and hawks. And actually, you know, here in Ohio, we actually saw a bald eagle the other day, which was super cool. Um, we were out working, actually my friend Mike had brought the horses over and, uh, we were standing out with the horses. We were doing some wagon rides for folks and, uh, the bald eagle just went over. It was super cool to see that. We have a rather large river near us, the Miami river. So I think that's where he was kind of headed towards, but it was just, again, super cool to see that here, um, to see the, them coming back so much. And, uh, so hawks do a great job of that. Also, you know, obviously domestic cats and dogs do a great job um, of getting those voles out of there. But if you have problems in the greenhouse, let's say you get them in. Um, and another thing, too, is putting flashing around your entire house, about a foot down all the way around. We like to see flashing, and that will prevent the voles from getting in. But if they're in, now here's how we deal with them. So first, um, we take little toolboxes. This is something I learned from Elliot Coleman. Super cool idea. Take a little plastic toolbox, so a dark colored one, so it can be completely, com completely pitch black inside. Drill an inch to an inch and a quarter hole and the long, actually the short ends, 
So uh, either end of the toolbox and then put in two snap traps. And the thing is, is these voles will run along the edge of the greenhouse and think this is a little tunnel to go in Two on the edge of the greenhouse, run in and get snapped. Um, the other thing is agrid three. So we use the exact same boxes and just put a couple bait chunks of agrid three in there. And so those are fabulous as well. And um, the other thing is just take a piece of four inch pipe, four inch um, drain pipe and slide two traps in as well. You know, with those, um, they again think it's a great tunnel to go hide in and then the snap traps are right in their way and they get trapped. So that's how to deal with voles. Um, moles, we tend not to have a, a problem with them in the tunnel just because the tunnel is such um, improved soil. There's not a lot of grubs in there. It's turned over so fast and that's what they're going after is grubs. Um, but that is something definitely to uh, that may have a problem as well. The other big one for winter is aphids. And aphids can be really, really challenging. It's really all about your management of nitrogen. Now, I always like to think that a highly tuned biological soil will release nitrogen at the rate the plants need, and that when you don't release too much nitrogen at one time, you're not going to have aphids. Because when you have high nitrogen levels, what happens is the cell walls are a lot less, um, I guess I would say a lot less lot less strong or they're just a lot weaker. And when you have weak cell walls, what happens is um, the uh, they can puncture the walls much, much easier, which means when they can puncture easier, they actually can grow faster. And they grow faster, they have more babies. And pretty soon you will have aphids over your entire greenhouse. Now, a lot of this comes back to the weekly crop walk. So we recommend a weekly or actually bi-weekly crop walk where every couple of days you're walking through your greenhouse, checking, looking at things, making sure there's no aphids. And if you see them, obviously it is as soon as you see them, you're going to spray for them. And there's a couple different things you can spray, but making sure that they are, you know, under control is key. So keeping those plants with plenty of fertility. So again, we talked at the beginning how, um, with fertility, you want to, uh, the amounts of fertility people are using very greatly. So um, again, maybe I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but every couple of years, Sandy Arnold, Elliot Coleman, and myself, we host this um, frozen ground conference. And usually it's in Vermont. It's in August. So we get some of the top winter growing experts from across the country together. And for two days, we discuss, vigorously discuss a lot of the time, the best ways to, for winter growing. And it's a lot of fun. I mean, it is so, so, so much fun because again, it's the deep thinking around this winter growing and like, how can we move this forward? How can we get more people to eat local greens and how can we produce them at better rates um, for people so we can, we can penetrate the market more. Um, and so we have great discussions. And this last year's, uh, it was 2019, we do them every other year. Uh, we had a great discussion about fertility because there are people all over the, the map. There's some people that, well, like Elliot Coleman, who doesn't test his soil and, uh, you know, just puts on what he thinks the soil needs. And again, being Elliot, he's been farming for so long that he literally probably is that level of skill. So again, I would still have to go up there and do a soil test and see what the actual soil says. Um, but then you look at Paul and Sandy who are putting on a lot of fertility in the fall. They're putting down a lot of fertility and that works for them. Some people are putting down a lot less. Um, I, we, David Kohlmeyer is there and he's a crop consultant from, I think, Ontario. And he was talking how one year he didn't put down any fertility on a brand new field, but because the biological activity was so high, his crops did incredibly well. So again, you know, it's this fertility aspect of things is, uh, there's not one 
one formula, one recipe that fits all. Again, it all comes back to that soil health. How can you increase your soil health? How can you do a better job with fertility? Um, and not just what you apply. It's about how you care for the soil too. So that's going to pay a huge aspect to this as well as, as reducing aphids. But some of the farmers that do have the best soils um, and doing a fabulous job with their soils still have problems with aphids. So um, I think there is some cultural control that needs to happen as well. And, um, you know, obviously we can bring in beneficials. So things like lace ring, wings, things like ladybugs. Um, and then obviously there's some sprays as well that you can use as well. So yeah, so back to kind of wrap that little side discussion up would be that you need to really think about your nitrogen. You need to be constantly monitoring what's happening in the greenhouse. Another technique we would do is we would actually flush the nitrogen in the spring because here's the thing, you put on all this fertility, it's, the soil's getting colder, so this nitrogen's locked up and not being released. But in the spring, as the nitrogen comes back from the soil warming up, because now it's an explosion of nitrogen, and we usually see an explosion of aphids around the same time, we would actually irrigate heavily, which actually would flush that nitrogen down in the soil a little bit and uh, help reduce the aphids. But we'd also, at that same time, usually we'd have in our calendar, February 1st, you're ordering ladybugs and just get the ladybugs in there. Um, and obviously there's actually a specific way you wanna release the ladybugs in the tunnel too. So you gotta make sure you do that properly or else they'll all fly off. So we talked about nitrogen levels, deficiencies, um, watering. Let's talk about watering in the tunnel because we've kind of mentioned it a little bit, but there is actually, and this is something that I think some people don't understand well. And so you want to make sure that you don't have too much moisture because again, moisture causes disease. And we haven't actually talked about disease, um, but it actually is related directly to the amount of moisture in there. So first, when we start the, the crops in the fall, the first thing we do is going to irrigate heavily after the summer crops come out. The reason for that is to make sure that the water is distributed evenly throughout this entire tunnel. If you're putting tomatoes in there, normally you're running drip tape right under the tomatoes, which means between those rows of tomatoes, there's some dry, dry spots. You don't want that to happen. So first we do is we irrigate the entire tunnel. Then we're going to go ahead, wait a couple days, bed up our beds. Um, and raised beds are better because with raised beds, you get better air drainage from the beds, as well as there's more surface area of the bed for the um, warm air to get against and heat up the beds. So we definitely see a, a rise in temperature once you have raised beds. And so the other thing with the the tunnels too, so we um, is irrigation, is then you're going to obviously... Um, Irrigate to settle your plants in or your seeds in to irrigate that so they germinate. And then pretty much you want to stop watering, except when it's super, super dry. I mean, we will we will let the surface completely dry out. And that's going to help with sclerotinia. It's going to help with um, anthracnose. It's going to help with uh, different downy mildew, that sort of thing on the different um, different crops. And uh, yeah, so that you want to keep it as dry as possible. So we might, you know, irrigate the crops in and then literally not irrigate again to like February or March. Um, so we will do some irrigation during the winter. Usually it's a deep, deep irrigation. So if we realize the plants are super dry or we have one of those super cold spells coming, we want to put the more moisture into the soil, we'll irrigate. But how we're going to do this is we're going to look on the forecast for a sunny day. Even if it can be super cold, it has to be sunny. We'll start irrigating as soon as the greenhouse thaws out, take the covers off, irrigate heavily for three to four hours, 
and then literally open up the house as much as possible. So if it's warm enough to roll up the sides, we'll roll up the sides. If it's warm enough to open the ends up, we'll completely open the ends up. Try to dry the tunnel back out again. Your goal is that you never have water beating on the inside layer of plastic. So you wanna have the inside plastic dry during the winter time. Um, and so I know a lot of people are like, oh my gosh, that blows my mind. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So then you, you do that, you focus on that, and, um, and then again, obviously we're going to start irrigating again once we get into March and April to kind of drive that, that nitrogen down, as well as by then the plants are, the, the temperatures are so much warmer and there's just a lot more demand on the, um, on that as well. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of like the overview of watering. Obviously there's some, some more aspects of it we could go into, but that's kind of like the simple aspect of it. Okay. Um, Uneven watering can be a problem too. So you just want to make sure you set up your, that's why we prefer overhead hanging from the rafters and not setting up with like uh, wobblers or like mega nets inside the tunnel. Um, I've actually consulted with uh, JM on this is that he was having some issues in the tunnel with like, just like just spots of like poor germination. And I was, and just poor growth. So I looked at it and I, I was like looking at it and I was like, you know what, JM, this is actually right below where your irrigation heads is. And I believe it's just from too much water in this one section, just flushing that nitrogen out. And it also comes back to the fertilizers too you're using. So if you're using highly soluble fertilizers, those are going to flush out a lot quicker than if you're using a slow release fertilizer that's going to release over a much longer time. So you have to be careful about that too. All right, um, HAF fans too. So if you have um, caterpillars, obviously you, it's kind of a little hard to put those in, um, but high tunnels definitely should have the HAF fans. Keep those on all winter long to uh, keep the air moving in there, to keep the dry as possible. And uh, let's see what else. Um, growth rates. This is another thing to think about too. And we kind of touched on this, you know, how we talked about things start to slow down in the fall. But really how it is, is... And at best, if I could, I don't, I can't, over the airwaves, I can't share a graphic. And a graphic's worth a thousand words, but I'll attempt to explain it. So what we've got is in December, in uh, let's say October, growth is definitely slowing in the field. September, it's still slowing. August actually slows from July. July is usually your fastest growth month. August tends to slow because your day length decreases as well as your temperatures typically decrease. Keeps decreasing through December, October, November. When you hit 10 hours of daylight a, a day, it pretty much stops. It doesn't completely stop, but it pretty much stops. So I still see usually spinach growing through that and um, you know some of the other greens will grow, but only if it's above 50 degrees. So it has to be above 50 degrees for that growth to happen. But once we get into, let's say, February, the light starts to increase again. The temperatures start because the light increases and the sun gains intensity. And it's not just the amount of light. It's the tense intensity and the solar radiation it's giving off. That's why LED lights will never do the same as sunlight because it just lacks the intensity. Um, so, yeah, we do know people that are using LED lights in the wintertime to increase growth. It can happen. You have to be over 50 degrees again. Um, it usually doesn't pay for it unless you're doing things like uh, microgreens or something like that. But it is possible. So kind of moving into, let's say, February and March, things really start to take off. And in fact, let's say in April in the greenhouse, you'll get greens in 21 days um, compared to, let's say, if you plant it in December, they'll sit there for 30, 40, 50 days before they really do anything just because, again, so cold. So what you have to do also is think about how you stack the crops in there. And so we'll also start pulling out crops end of February 
because we know as we'll harvest a section in the, the greenhouse and we'll actually change that over to a brand new crop. Maybe we'll switch it to beets or turnips or another green. Maybe we'll plant head lettuce in there because we know that literally a couple weeks later, it's going to start growing so fast. We will just be tilling under large swatches of these other crops in there because they're just growing so fast. Um, obviously, if you have caterpillar tunnels, all of this is going to be delayed because with a large high tunnel, the growth is just going to be so much better because of the size of the tunnel and the microclimate in that tunnel. So pro tip on the overwintered and bolted greens. Um, so like if you're doing things like Mizuna, Tokyo Bacana, bok choys, things like that, you can, even kales, when they start to bolt, you can sell that as we call it like kalini or like um, Asian bunching greens or like stir fry greens is something we would sell that at. And again, with the beautiful flowers from the brassicas and a couple brightly colored leaves in there from some of the red brassicas, it makes a great presentation. Sell it with either like the rest of the garlic you've got or like an overwintered green garlic and it will fly off the table or the CSA customers will absolutely love it. All right, so there you go. That was a lot. Um, so I know we couldn't answer all your questions in this about winter growing. So we do have an ebook. So if you go to www.growingfarmers.com forward slash, I think it's winter growing or um, four season farming. I think it's winter growing. Just go to, I'll make sure that the redirect works. So if you do growingfarmers.com forward slash winter growing, you will absolutely get the opt in for our ebook. You'll be able to download that it's a fabulous ebook. It is, how many pages is this? I think this is like 60 pages. We have a lot. It's an older ebook. Um, it's it's definitely a little bit older because there's some old links in there, but the content is fabulous. It's absolutely fabulous. It's got some great pictures that kind of show the progression of things, how we talked about it, the graphs. We show like how we constructed our greenhouses. We show how we do interplanting. Um, I probably really should be charging for this because it's it's a lot of material. There's a, a fabulous amount of material there. We go through the whole acclimation. We talk through different scenarios. Um, we talk a few crops and stuff like that. So, yeah, go ahead, download that ebook. Um, it's free at the moment. I would say don't wait. It's free at the moment. So go ahead, grab that. And if you again, if you have questions about anything we talk about here in the podcast, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook. It's Growing Farmers with Michael. We have a fabulous Facebook group called Your Successful Farm Business Group. Um, over 11,000 members, I believe, in there. Um, very active group. Lots of discussion happening. So go ahead, join us. And can't wait to share more things next week with you on the podcast. And now a word from one of our sponsors. Farmbrig is an online platform that was created to address the high bankruptcy rate, 19% in 2009 alone among farmers. By giving farms access to local consumers, education, and lean farming techniques, Farmbrig is the global epicenter for local farming communities. Farms that sign up on Farmbrig will have a farm profile to be searched by local consumers, a place to post jobs, find farm workers, be associated with farmers markets, sell products online, and access lean farming and other business resources. Visit farmbrig.com, that is farm, B-R-I-G-G-E.com to learn more. 
Next week on the podcast, I will be interviewing Mike Dixon from Big Pond Farm. Mike farms with his family in the Carolinas, and they do vegetables, some animals, as well as run a very popular YouTube channel that shares their journey. We talk everything from how they got started, why they farm, and how they are marketing their farm and producing product for their communities. So join me next week as I interview Mike Dixon from Big Pond Farm. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.